Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. Um, welcome, everybody, to City Beautiful Church. There's a, a few new faces here, which I'm really glad to see. If you have the courage to raise your hand if you're brand new first Sunday in there, ever, anybody? Yeah, a couple people. How about, um, is there anybody that's been like three months or less? Three months or less. Look at that. Isn't that wonderful? So it's exciting to see people coming through even in these times. Um, So today we're beginning our first series of the year, which of course is called The Kingdom Manifesto. Um, So we love to be slow when it comes to the beginning of the year. I love to be slow, which means that everybody else has to be slow. I think that's how that actually works. So the beginning of the year, we're really slowing down and we're asking the Lord to give us some vision. So the kind of the first Sunday that we're looking at after Epiphany, we're asking the Lord for vision for each one of us to guide our year. And many of you had some amazing words that were confirmed by the Lord that just, it, it's the beginning of a conversation that you're having with him through 2021. Then the next week, um, we were talking about the grand vision that we have for the year as a church. Where's the Lord, the Lord taking us together? And it was all our allegiance to King Jesus. And so we broke down what does that mean? That allegiance, it, it's, it's a word for faith, but it's, it's full-bodied, it's comprehensive, it's active, and, and it's about us getting all of ourselves, every part of who we are is behind Jesus and seeing him as our king. Um, and then last week we talked about how do we do that practically? It's a wonderful concept, but what does that look like? So we, as we serve one another within the kingdom and as we serve the world outside of the church, We love people back into the presence of God. And also, as we're learning in the kingdom, we're learning how to be citizens. And so, our first series that we're going to be looking at is called uh, The Kingdom Manifesto. And the beginning of each year, um, we usually hone in on one of the gospels, the story of Jesus, to, to sort of give us the trajectory, and then the Lord begins to offer us things kind of after that. So usually from the beginning of the year until Easter. Um, so last year we did Luke. The year before, I think we did John. Um, this year, however, I really felt like the Lord was inviting us just to hone in on the Sermon on the Mount. For the, so for the next several months, we're going to go verse by verse through Matthew chapters five through seven. And it's seen as Jesus's kind of manifesto for kingdom living. This is what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom. So today I'm gonna give an overlook uh, and I'm wearing a jacket because I get to be a bit more professorial today. So you can always tell what kind of sermon you're getting based on what I'm wearing, you know? If it's a t-shirt and a cool jean jacket, you know we're just gonna have like a rap session, you know? Um, If I'm wearing a button-up shirt, you know we're gonna go into deep spiritual reflection. But when I'm wearing a jacket, that's when you know you're gonna learn something good. So take lots of notes. This this one is intended to uh, kind of stimulate your mind grapes. So I'm gonna pray. And we'll get into this. Um, Heavenly Father, we testify to the truth that you are here. That you are with us. That you are for us. And you are not against us. Even now, Lord, I pray that you would have the freedom to send your spirit, the spirit of Jesus, to move in and through this space to soften our hearts, to receive truth that we desperately need. 
to open our ears to hear you speaking to each one of us wherever we might be at today. And you'd open our minds to be able to contemplate the glory that is the good news of the kingdom of heaven. To be with us today, Lord, may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So <clears throat> what we're going to do, I'm going to kind of give an overview of like how it is that we get to the Gospels, the, the written story of Jesus, and then I'm going to lead specifically through the story of Jesus right up to the edge of the Sermon on the Mount, and the next week we'll actually start the sermon. So the central Gospel proclamation, we've talked about this before. Many years ago when I ran a ministry school, um, kind of at the beginning of the year, I'd ask them, what's the Gospel? And I had one um, very lovely young man who kind of felt like he had heard it and seen it all, and he came in uh, on that day, and I said, okay, can anybody, if you could sum up the gospel in one word or phrase, what it be? And he goes, Jesus died for my sins so I can go to heaven when I die. And I said, no, and then I got his attention. Wait, what? I said, no, that's not the gospel. He said, but no, it is. Jesus died for my sins so I can go to heaven when I die. I said, actually, I think it's going to be much bigger than that. And we looked at a passage that we're going to be looking at today, and hopefully some of you even now, you're like, what? That's not the gospel? Now, we're going to talk about the gospel today. This is the central gospel proclamation. That's what I said. Gospel is not good advice, okay? There's lots of good advice out there on the internet. It's like if you want to have a happier marriage or you want to do this, that, and the other, here's some things that might be nice for you to do. The, the gospel is not that. It's not advice. Um, the gospel is a proclamation of something that is true, and then there's an invitation for you to receive that. But your response does not determine whether or not it's the gospel, because it's true, okay? And that's, that's the difference of what we're going to be talking about today. So the central gospel proclamation of the scriptures, the holy scripture, the Bible, is this, that God is taking back the throne of the world through his anointed king, Jesus. This is the central gospel proclamation. All of the writers of the gospels agreed on this. Paul and everybody in the early church, they all agreed. When they said gospel, this is what they thought. An even shorter, more you know, compact proclamation is Jesus is Lord. That's what, they meant. That's what they meant. That was the gospel. Jesus is Lord. Now, on the other side of that proclamation, there was an invitation. Repent and believe. And when you repent and believe, then there are benefits to the gospel. Okay? your eternal salvation, you've been now found in a family, you've been justified, you will be sanctified. Some of these things, these are all kind of the fruit of the gospel proclamation, but unfortunately what happens too often in our modern cultures, we come into the gospel with the wrong questions and then we get the wrong answers. We say, how do I this? Usually, historically, it's been, how do I get saved? Which means, how do I go to heaven when I die? And then the Bible's supposed to answer that question. But it becomes a very me-based gospel. And part of our pivot towards this idea of allegiance as our response to the gospel is that it becomes less about me and it becomes more about Jesus. And the more that I submit to Jesus, that I pledge allegiance to Jesus, the more I find those benefits of the gospel begin to play out. So I'm going to tell you the whole story very briefly, get us up to uh, the story of Jesus, and then get us up to the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, so uh, there are these, there's this people group, they're called Israel, and they're in prison, essentially. They're in slavery in Egypt. 
Um, They're a displaced people for 400 years. Uh, They've been in slavery. And when you're in slavery, um, you are what you do, okay? That's what it means to be a slave. Any slaves in here? You are what you do. That's what you believe. So for them, it was, you are how big this wall gets, how many bricks you make, this, that, and the other. And there's no rest. All of life is just doing, 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 doing in order to prove your value. And if you didn't do enough, then you were punished for it. And so 400 years of Israel living under this, their, their identity had been stripped from them and replaced with this idea that they are human doings and not human beings. But then the cry goes out and God responds, this Yahweh, this God of Israel, and he rescues them out of Egypt. I'm going to have to give you my password probably there. Uh, just turn it off. I'll get it later. I'm not giving you my password. No. It's password. One, two, three, four, five. That's amazing. That's the same combo I have in my luggage. Spaceballs. Anyway. Sorry. Mel Brooks. Where were we? Okay, so God saves, God saves Israel out of Egypt, and he's moving to them to the promised land. And, and one of the central promises he makes over these people is, I'm going to make you a kingdom of priests, a kingdom of priests, or we see elsewhere, a royal priesthood. And they're supposed to live in this vocation that as priests, they're going to be the mediators between God and all of humanity. That was their job. Israel's job was, we're going to be the mediator. We're going to reveal what God is like to the world in order to reconcile the world back to God. And it's a kingdom because we're going to demonstrate this is what people look like when they live under the rule of God as the true king. So that was always the process of what God is trying to do in Israel. But um, Israel failed in this job time and again. They took their eye off the prize. They abdicated intimacy with God as their king. They said, we want other kings. We want to do things the way that everybody else did. And so they failed. And eventually what happens is that Israel becomes ruled over by a bunch of other empires. First, it's Babylon. Then it's Persia. Then it's Greece. And then about 60 years before the coming of Jesus, it's Rome. Rome is the biggest empire of the day. And they have taken over this small area called Judea, uh, or the land of the Jews, which is what Judea means, which was Israel. But during all of this time, um, the faithful remnant in Israel are still holding on to this promise that first of all, God was going to create, make them a nation, but then secondly, God was going to bless the world through them. This is the same promise that God gave to Abraham at the very beginning. I'm going to bless you and all of your children will be a blessing. And so the blessing first comes to them, but then it flows through them for the sake of the world. But the time and again, they failed that. And this gives us a really unique opportunity to then perceive what is it that Jesus is actually doing. Because what we're going to see is that where Israel failed time and again to live up to the covenant that they had made with Yahweh, Jesus fulfills it. And so there's a very fancy word in theology called recapitulation. And it means where you tell the story all over again through your actions in a way that demonstrates faithfulness. So I want to show you the amazing parallels between Israel's story and between Jesus' story. So in the story of Israel and Moses as their leader, they flee from Egypt, they go through the desert, and then they enter into this promised land. God had promised them, this is going to be the place where I'm going to establish you. And what we see in the story of Jesus is because of uh, Herod wanting to wipe out all the babies, um, Joseph 
and Mary take the infant Jesus, they run to Egypt, they hang out there for a couple years, and then eventually a spirit, the spirit of the Lord comes and says, okay, it's good, you're good to go back, you're good to come back to Judea. And so we see that parallel in Jesus where he moves from Egypt to Judea. On their journey, Moses and Israel flee, fleeing from Egypt, first they pass through the Dead Sea, and then again they pass through the River Jordan, entering into the Promised Land. And whenever you pass through water, it's this symbol that you're moving from death to life, from Egypt to the Promised Land. So when you and I, when we were baptized, that's what was happening. We are dead to our former life, and we have new freedom in the new life, in the Promised Land. And we see in the life of Jesus, before he begins his earthly ministry, he goes down to the River Jordan to be baptized by his cousin, John the Baptist. And it's interesting engagement because John says, well, I, no, I don't understand. I, you don't, if anybody doesn't need to be baptized, it's you. In fact, you should be baptizing me. And Jesus says, no, this is right to fulfill all the scriptures. And that's the key that Jesus is retelling the story of Jesus. But where they fails, he succeeds. And then after that, the story that we're going to be reading today, um, Israel enters into the desert for 40 years between when they leave Egypt and when they finally arrive in the promised land. And then Jesus is in the desert for 40 days. We'll explore that in a moment. And then while they're in the desert, Israel bumps into Mount Sinai and Moses goes up on top of the mountain and he receives the Ten Commandments, the law. He brings that down for the people. And in the story of Jesus, he bumps into another mountain, but on this mountain, everybody sits down and begins to listen to him. So there's obvious parallels. So it's those last two things that we're going to be really looking at today. So we're going to be reading today from Matthew chapter 4. I'm going to begin in the first verse. This is the story of Jesus' temptation. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, which is maybe the overstatement um, of the scriptures. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stories to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. Whenever you see the number 40 in Scripture, it's a number for Jews that meant um, hum humility, being humbled, learning how to rely on God, okay? So Noah was in the ark for 40 days and nights. He had to learn to rely on God, God waiting for him to show him when it was time to start looking for land. Israel is in the desert for 40 days and nights, learning how to rely on God in that season. And so we can assume that the same thing is happening here. Jesus is in the desert for 40 days and nights so that he can learn what it means to rely on God. Because it's interesting at the beginning of this, I don't even know if you guys noticed it, said, then Jesus was led by the Spirit 
to be tempted by the devil. We say, how strange is that? That the Holy Spirit would be the one that leads Jesus into the desert to be tempted? But it was necessary for Jesus to kind of, not to earn his status as the anointed king, but to pass through that rite of passage. Because what we find here is the question is being posed to Jesus that is the question being posed to all of us. Who do you want on the throne, especially when it gets hard? Who do you think should be in charge? Do you believe that it is God who's in charge? Do you believe that you would, have, you would do it better? That you could take matters into your own hands? Grab the bull by the horns, take the reins, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps? We have a lot of these kinds of sayings in our culture. Or maybe you actually believe that it's Satan. Well, if I just do a deal with the devil, then I will get what I want. And these are the kind, this is the challenge to Jesus time and again. And there are three essential questions that come out of this passage that speak to what it means to have allegiance to God because of the same three questions that were asked of Israel and the same three questions that are asked of us. And this is like, I swear, the most pastorly thing that I have ever done in a sermon because I usually kind of avoid this stuff. There's three of them. These all begin with the letter P, okay? So you're going to remember all of them. This is great. I'm going to write a book just about this. Number one, this is the same. Israel was challenged in the desert with these things. Jesus was challenged in the desert with these things. We are challenged every single day. Number one is provision. Number two, protection. And number three, power, okay? Provision, protection, and power. So the first one, provision. Does God provide for us? Now, if you know the story of Israel in the desert, they immediately start complaining, and a lot of them are even like, man, I think we actually had it better in Egypt because at least we, we had room and board. At least we had some meals. At least we knew what we were going to do every day. How many of you, you need a schedule every day? Like you need it on your calendar, right? So Israel have been rescued out of slavery they're, being, they're passing through the desert, and the desert is kind of symbolic of, like, you don't have anywhere else to really turn. All of your bugaboos start to come up when you're in that desert. All of your idols begin to be re- revealed when you're in the desert. So as we prepare for Lent in just a couple weeks, that's what we're doing. When we remove all of our comfort, do we rely on God? Do we place allegiance in him? And so provision was that first question. And God provided in the desert exactly what they needed each day in, the, in, in manna, in quail. We find Jesus, as we're going to see later in, the, in the, what we call the Lord's Prayer, he says, give us today our daily bread. Because God knows if he gives us more than that, we're going to say, right, thanks, and we just run off and do our own thing. But what happens when we do not believe that God will provide for us is that we enter into a scarcity mentality and we believe that there's not enough to go around and that maybe God isn't good and he's not going to provide for us, and then we start doing it ourselves. Or we start to look for somebody who will provide for us, who will give us what we need day by day. Now, when a bunch of people get together and do that, then they create a scarcity economy. Imagine, this is really abstract. I don't know if you can picture this. Imagine like a whole, let's say 336 million people come together, just hypothetically, and they create an economy, and this entire economy is hinged on the idea that there's not enough to go around. Okay? Just, this is crazy. Now, imagine some people in that economy say, you know what we could do? We could actually take advantage of the labor of certain groups of people, and we can continue to amass wealth, so we'll never run out. Wouldn't that be great? But the problem is when I live out of scarcity mentality, there's not su- no, no such thing as enough. 
I always need more and more and more and more and more. And so I continue to amass. Well, I know they're speaking over your heads here. This is totally abstract, but just to picture this for a second. But we create, when we do not believe that God provides and that he is a generous God, we turn to scarcity. And we begin to do whatever we need to get our piece of the pie and damn the rest. The second thing is protection. Does God protect us? So we see in the story of Israel as they begin to send spies into Canaan, into the promised land, and they see what's there, they start to get really intimidated and really freaked out because they believe, well, I don't know if God is actually going to protect us. And that's when Israel, even when they take the promised land, they begin to forget that God protects, and what do they start doing? They start amassing weapons of mass destruction. You know, that by the time of Solomon, he was the number one arms dealer in the Middle East, he was buying from Egypt and he was selling. And, and there's, a, there's a line in the Psalms that says, you know, some put their, their confidence in chariots and kings, but we put our confidence in God. Today, we'd say some put our confidence in AK-47s and in tanks and the military-industrial complex, but we put our trust in God. And so this the militarism, which is different than the military, militarism is us saying we don't actually pr- believe that God will protect us. And the third is power. It's power. Will God empower us to do what we were here to do, to subdue the earth? And so what we see in the temptation that Satan brings to Jesus is, if, he's like, I'll give you all of this if you worship down about me. So if you do a deal with the devil, I'll give you all the power that you could possibly imagine. You will be in charge. Now, God did tell us that we were to subdue the earth, that we, would, that we would be in control. And, and the promise that we have in Jesus is that someday we will reign with him over all of creation. But there's a way to shortcut our claim to power, which we often feel like we deserve. And that's to collude with Satan, to collude with the powers and the principalities. And that's what we've seen in the church over the past 50 years is a lot of leaders in the church leading whole movements of Christians to believe. If we collude with the empire, then we'll get the power and then we can fix the world and make it look like the kingdom. But too often we have abdicated our kingdom ethics for the sake of shimmying up to presidents and congress people and the courts. Okay. Again, we're just totally speaking in the abstract here, Steve. How's the modern church doing when it comes to these three things? Does God provide for us? Or do we believe there's a scarcity mentality and I just got to get my piece of the puzzle? Do we believe that God protects us? Or am I going to turn to weapons of war in order to protect myself and my people? And does God give us power? Or do we have to collude with the empirical systems of the world in order to do the thing that we're here to do? So maybe it's not so hard for us to imagine like when Israel failed after 40 years, I think the modern American church has also failed after 40 years. Thanks be to God that he gave us Jesus, that where we fail time and again, he fulfills all of those things, that he stood in the gap for us and his allegiance was tested and he was found true. Now the story goes on. Jesus kind of enters or he leaves this time in the desert And he begins his earthly ministry. And that's what we're going to be reading next, beginning in verse 12. So when Jesus heard that John, this is his cousin John, had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee, leaving Nazareth. He went and lived in Capernaum, 
which was by the lake in the area of Zebulon and Naphtali. You all know this place. To fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach. Now listen, thinking about that good news, okay? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. So Jesus' very first sermon, it's very short and it's very to the point and it's great. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Jesus does not waffle nearly as much as I do. And he doesn't make space balls references in the middle of his sermons haphazardly. <laughs> So Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. Again, the gospel is being preached in Matthew chapter 4. Jesus has not died yet, okay? That comes later. The good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him, all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. So here we find Jesus' very first sermon. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. But in our modern language, we might say, change the way you think about everything because the new reality of God and what he's doing in the world is so close that you can reach out and you can touch it. That's his first sermon. That's what he's saying. That is the good news. And so everything that Jesus says and does from that point is unpacking that statement. So it's a really good lens for you to read the words of Jesus and to observe the actions of Jesus. In what way do his words and actions go back to his first point? Repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Change the way that you think about everything because the new reality of God is so close that you can reach out and you can touch it. Now what Jesus recognized in his, in his moment in history in the, in the first century is that Israel was heading in the wrong direction. They had been brutalized by empires for so long, they were again in that place of not really believing that God will provide for them, that God will protect them, and that God will empower them. And they were rising up, planning violent revolution against the Roman Empire, trying to kick them out and to reestablish Israel on their own terms. And that's why Matthew chooses to quote here the prophet Isaiah from chapter 9, where he says, the people living in a darkness have seen a great light, those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You see, we live in a land of shadow of death when we always assume that violence is the way that we're going to establish the kingdom of God. When we think the way that we achieve what God wants is to just fight fire with fire. And Jesus saw this in Israel. There were revolutions popping up all through the first century. Messiahs were a dime a dozen. Somebody popping up and saying, I'm the anointed king and I'm going to train you up and we're going to take up the sword and we're going to beat up Rome and we're going to retake the land. And guess what? They actually did it. In 67 AD, there was the Bar Kokhba revolution. This guy rises up, Bar Kokhba says, I'm the Messiah. They say, that makes a lot of sense. That seems like that's the way God would do things. They fought the Romans and they beat them up and they retook the land. And it was great for three years. And then Rome laid siege to Jerusalem and sacked it. And that was the, kind of the end of the, the state of Israel until we know it. 
at least until 1947, but that's another uh, sermon altogether. And so Jesus was so concerned about violent insurrection that he came to say, no, there is a better way. There is a more godly way for us to, to live out of the allegiance to him, to believe that he will provide, he will protect, and he will empower us. And so the kingdom becomes this place where words and actions meet. That Jesus speaks the words of the kingdom, but then he also demonstrates the kingdom through bringing healing, through bringing deliverance. The story that we kind of skipped over in the middle there was is reaching out to the overlooked and making them disciples. Peter and James and these others, they weren't anything special. They said, oh, God, God has nothing to do for us. He says, no, actually, I can do something with that. We begin to look at the way that Jesus operates and going, ah, this is what it looks like for it to be the kingdom. And so Jesus begins to gather together disciples who believe that maybe there is a better way of doing this thing called humanity. Maybe there is a better way for us uh, to be faithful to who God is calling us to be. A group of people that perceive that the way of empire is tricksy and false but that they believe that even within their own people, they seem like they're veering off course and they're losing what faithfulness means to God altogether. Stop me if you've heard this one. And there's these people and they're hungry and they're desperate. And they have just enough prophetic imagination to believe there's got to be another way. There's got to be a better way. I'm sick and I'm tired of the status quo. I'm sick and I'm tired of this constant back and forth in humanity that doesn't seem to lead anywhere. And so, as these people begin to follow Jesus, we find another mountain, and we find the ambassador of God. In the place of Moses, Jesus is kind of, uh, you know, Moses is a type that's just a, a hint of what's to come in Jesus. Jesus is Moses fully revealed, sitting down on a mountain and beginning to speak to the people, and now they're really desperate to hear it. And that brings us, I think, to the second parallel that we see, that the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' manifesto for what it looks like when God is king. It's his manifesto, saying this is the central teaching on kingdom living. So if you know the story of Israel, you know they, they bump into Mount Sinai, there's this cloud up on top of the mountain, that's where God is, that's where Yahweh is. Everybody's terrified. It's my favorite verse in the Old Testament, Exodus 19, 20. It says, and the people, this is the King James, and the people stood afar off because Moses entered into the thick darkness where God was. And see, that's how a lot of us operate too. We stand afar off and we want the professional Christians to go in on our behalf because whatever God that's up there, he's a little bit intimidating. He's kind of scary, okay? But what happens? Moses goes up on top of the mountain. He's up there for, oh, wow, 40 days and nights. Weird. Huh, wonder what that means. And then he comes down with the Ten Commandments, which we call the law. That's the foundation of the law. Now, a lot of times, we've grown up in churches that oversimplify the first covenant and the second. And they go, oh, that was terrible and that was legalism and Judaism's just about following rules and thank God that we're in Christianity because now there's no rules and there's no legalism. We get to just be, be and do whatever we want and that's what it means to be a Christian. That's an oversimplification that I think demonizes the, the amazing things that God is doing in the Old Testament and especially when you understand what covenant is. The, the Old Testament was full of grace. Like there was so much grace in it and God was committed and he's like, this isn't a legal obligation where you do this and I'll do that but it's me trying to rehabilitate you, okay? So the first thing that God is doing through the law is that he's rehabilitating an abused people 
who had had their identity stripped from them. They didn't know who they were, and they don't know who God is, and they're scared, and they're intimidated. They don't know what they're on this earth to do. How many of you, you've been in that place? You've been so enslaved by the systems of the world that you don't know who you are, you don't know who you belong to, and you don't know what you're actually on this earth to do. And so part of what God is doing through the law is he's rehabilitating them. He's giving them a program to walk back into health, mental health, emotional health, spiritual health, and physical health. But the second thing that God is doing is he's giving them a job to do and teaching them how to do that job. Because the word for law in Hebrew is halakha, and it means the path that one walks. And so what God is saying to Israel is, you want to know how to walk with me. And you want to know how to fulfill the job that I've given you to do, because it's a big job. Well, do it like this. And as you walk this out, where all of these normal, supposedly mundane things in life, like making food or deciding what shirt goes with what pants or whatever, all of it all of a sudden becomes sacred because you're welcoming me into that presence, into that moment in your life. And as you walk this path, you're going to begin to understand what it means for you to be a royal priesthood for you to be the mediator between me and all of humanity to love everyone back into my presence. And so the law, far from just being a a bunch of rules that Israel was supposed to be uh, following, and thank God we were delivered from that, it actually was was an early attempt to answer the questions that are within all of us in humanity of intimacy, identity, and purpose. And the law gives the people that intimate relationship with Yahweh It gives them an identity as being a people who have been chosen and beloved. And then it gives them a purpose as a royal priesthood. And so when we understand in the proper context what the Sermon on the Mount is, it is a fulfillment and an expansion of the law. It's the same thing. God is saying through Mount Sinai, you want to know how to walk with me? Do it like this. But that's what Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount on this next mountain. You want to walk with me? You want to learn intimacy with Father God? You want to learn your identity in me as the beloved? You want to know what your job is to do on this earth? Then walk it out like this. And so what we see is that the Sermon on the Mount and this heralding of the goodness, the kingdom of God is a new world that's breaking through in the middle of the old one. This new world is rupturing up in the middle of the, new, of the old And we're called to live in a certain way, to walk a path. You know, maybe it feels counterintuitive that when we say all our allegiance to King Jesus, we're not beginning by talking about what it means for Jesus to be king. We're actually getting more specific, like walking through the Sermon on the Mount. But I think that this is intentional because we learn about the king through how we are called to live in the kingdom. So if we don't learn how to live in the kingdom... Jesus being king is just this weird abstract. So the Sermon on the Mount, as the kind of fulfillment of the law of God, it's not about just changing your behavior. It's not about just making you a good Christian boy or a good Christian girl so that you can get to go to heaven when you die. It's about practically living out a revelation of the heart of God that's going to transform you from the inside out. Soren Kierkegaard was very fond of saying life is lived forwards but understood backwards. And so when we are obedient to God 
even when we don't understand it, we don't get it, we can't really perceive the heart of Jesus in it. But when we live out obedience, it's kind of retroactive. We go, oh my goodness, that's what he's like. That's what our king is like. I wouldn't have never have known that until I chose to live in his way. So the questions that we're going to be considering in this season as we go through this verse by verse is, what is the deeper truth that Jesus is calling me to embrace about how I am to be in the world? That if you know him at all, you know there's always a little bit more going on beneath the surface than what Jesus initially says. And he likes it that way, so you're just going to have to get used to that. Rarely is Jesus direct and just says, this is what I mean. He's always talking in weird stories and telling you one thing, but it kind of means this deeper thing because he wants you to work it out because that's what intimacy looks like. It's working it out. And I think that maybe the biggest question is with each of the commands that we find in the Sermon on the Mount, what does it teach us about the heart of the king? If I was to so radically live this way, to give myself over to this kind of living, as we'll see next week where Jesus talks about fulfilling the law by doing these things. What am I going to learn about the heart of King Jesus? So maybe allegiance needs to come first, or at least there's a conversation between king and kingdom. And so my challenge for everybody this week, I want you to read through the Sermon on the Mount in its entirety at least once. If you're really brave, you'll do it every single day. And I don't want you to stop and like go and get a concordance or Google what this thing means. Just, just read it. Just familiarize yourself with it. What sticks out to you? What makes you curious? What do you want to know more about? Just to kind of open up your story to whatever it is that God is doing there. So I invite you to stand with me. And we're going to worship. Because worship is one of those ways that we enter deeper and deeper into the kingdom where you and I, we are a people who have been broken open by our frustrations with the world, either the status quo of of the empires or where God's people have gone astray and we're frustrated. And we say, I don't think this is the way this is supposed to go. But the spirit comes along and breaks us open to give us that prophetic imagination that we need to believe. No, there's a new world breaking out in this one in the old one. There's a new world bubbling up to the surface right in our midst. And when we worship, it's through our words and our deeds that we're making that kingdom reality come alive for us and for those around us. So I'm going to pray uh, and we're going to sing unto the Lord. So Father, I thank you so much for this journey that we're about to participate on. Walking through the Sermon on the Mount is this manifesto of what it means to live in the kingdom. God, I pray that day by day, step by step, as we more boldly take those steps of faith to enter into kingdom thinking and kingdom doing, that it would reflect back to us what your heart for all of humanity really is. And the more that we're obedient to do what you're calling us to do, the more we trust that you are in fact good that you desire for us to thrive, but that you desire for, to use us to help the world thrive. Lord, teach us how to believe that you will provide for us, that we need not to be afraid that there's not enough to go around. May you protect us. May we trust that so we don't run to conventional forms of violence in order to protect ourselves. And may you give us power, a power that only flows from your throne so that we do not settle to aligning ourselves to colluding with lesser forms of power 
that are found in the world in order to do the things that we think that we're here to do. God, I thank you for these people. I thank you for this moment. May this be a holy and sacred moment where we meet with you to do some business. And in doing so, we're transformed from the inside out. Bless your name. Bless your name. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.